radical secular podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions, and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Joe Kipinti. Today, we're going to talk about something that we all have and we all do, which is consciousness, otherwise known as sentience or self-awareness. We've been wanting to do this particular subject for a while now, and we won't by any means be able to cover all that ground uh, that we'd like to today. But last week, Christoph hosted our discussion of meditation, and he announced that we'd be doing an ongoing series on self-actualization. And I consider today's episode to be a part of that series. Yep. Unfortunately, Christoph couldn't make it today. He is on a long scheduled trip, so we will see him next week. But this question of consciousness has intrigued philosophers from Plato and Aristotle up through the present day. And we can't discuss this huge subject of consciousness without getting into questions of monism versus dualism, the nature of the universe and matter. Each of these could be the subject of its own episode or even an entire college philosophy course. So what we're going to try to do today is just get acquainted with the broad outlines of the subject and define some terminology. The reason this conversation is of utmost importance to us at The Radical Secular is because there are many widely held opinions about the nature of consciousness that tend to lead people toward religion or spirituality, and by extension, conservative hierarchical politics. And we're going to make those connections today. Conversely, a fully materialistic understanding of consciousness tends to accompany atheism or non-theism, secularism, a scientific technocratic approach to governance. As Christoph noted last week about meditation, the three of us are not of one mind about this subject. So Joe and I will be exploring our different perspectives today. But before we get into that conversation, I want to remind you, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And please check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. Okay, let's talk about our t-shirts. Joe, what are you wearing today? Well, I had to do it, considering the conversation. I got my Ghostbuster t-shirt on. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That is absolutely perfect. Because Set as we tone the haunting of our consciousness and our politics with this dualistic, yeah, uh, it's an issue. So I have, in the same vein a little bit, I have my Picard. <laughs> that's awesome. And Picard is doing a face palm and... It's kind of unique because this is an outline line drawing of it, but it's highly recognizable. That couldn't be anyone else. So, Right. Okay. We're going to skip our news segment today in the interest of time because this is a big subject. Sounds good. Before we get into our main topic, though, I want to give you a chance, Joe, to talk about your excellent article this past week on the Radical Secular blog, which is called Uh Beneath the Skin of Capitalism. Well, thanks. The piece is really about, for me, it's about the course of humanity. Do we need to live with a hierarchy that creates massive wealth and power disparities. Can we live within the limits of the biosphere? Or are we like bacteria in the Petri dish, which will expand until all the nutrients are gone, and then we wink out? If we find ourselves in an undesirable place, then why are we not challenging the system that got us here? Why has it been so hard to talk about alternatives to capitalism, or at least fundamental reform to it? Capitalism has built into it mechanisms that obscure its destructive effects on nature and on people. What are the alternatives? We need to ask that question. 
Well, one of the big ones that has been attacked and discredited for more than a century is socialism. What about that? What can we say about socialism? One of the clues that one lives under the control of a ruling cognitive hierarchy is when one cannot even frame the question nor ask it. There is physical control like the police, like guns and prisons, and then there's mental control like erasing the possibility of even asking questions. How many people simply accept that our current political economy is just the way it is, almost like a law of nature? Mm -hmm. And that's what my piece is about. And in some ways, that's also what our show is about today, is about asking questions and about the integral part of human existence, consciousness. What is it? Yeah, before we, we launch into that, I just want to, to respond to what you said, because it really mm -hmm. has become this thing where if you bring up the word socialism, right, or even anti-fascism, which I have on my profile right. pic, there's a certain group of people that, that, that you're discredited, you're just off the list, you can't even talk about it, right? And that right. is, to me, a sign of a weakness of the existing regime right now that they have so demonized yeah. that you can't even talk about alternatives, right? And right. People are starving, wages are, are too low, and that's never questioned. And we have these billionaires and people making tens of millions of dollars per year as CEOs, and that's never questioned. So the issue that we get into so much here at The Radical Secular is trying to dismantle unearned hierarchy, and that is what we're talking about. We, we cannot avoid these conversations about capitalism versus socialism. And, and as we'll find out when we talk about consciousness, these are related topics because the, right. the spirit uh, versus matter, the mind versus body, there's a hierarchy there that is unearned and unequal, and that has had some serious consequences. So, all right, I wanna make a brief disclaimer though, that neither Joe or I have philosophy degrees. And I know that no matter what we say here today, we are gonna piss off some philosophers. So we already know that. <laughs> They're no doubt gonna tell us that we're in over our heads, that things are much more complex than we're making them out to be. But here's why I think it's important that non-philosophers start to have these kind of conversations. Uh, the nature of consciousness matter and dualism have profound implications for ethics, human rights, and how society should be organized. Our concepts of civil and criminal law rely on the assumption of human free will, which we'll discuss in a later episode. Acceptance of the totality of our existence as primates, as mammals, as homo sapiens remains yes. in conflict with many of the world's religions and many forms of spirituality. So if we're really completely material beings, then an awful lot of people are suffering under spiritual and religious rules for no good reason. So because it concerns the nature of reality in our minds, this might be the most universally important topic that we've discussed. And I don't want to cast aspersions on our other shows because we've got a lot of other great shows and we'll have more in the future. But yeah. this type of examination of our fundamental principles is what I'm talking about. And we think it's even more important that ordinary people get more comfortable, at least with the nature of the questions that we're asking ourselves. Definitely. Otherwise, what are we left with? We can either accept the false certitudes of religion as the final word about the nature of self, our consciousness and reality, or we can fall prey to the kind of waffling and hair splitting that leaves discussion of these kind of questions basically off limits to people without PhDs. And it's complicated, but it's not so complicated that we can't discuss it. And I think everyone should be more interested in these kinds of things. So do you agree with this, Joe? What do you think? Does a common sense approach feel comfortable for you? Yeah, I definitely do. And I think normal everyday people do need to talk about these things and think them through. I think that's very possible. 
But let's define the different approaches in this show. That's what I like to do. I will be honest. I don't know what consciousness is. And I've been thinking and exploring this question all my life. Why have I done that? Why is this question worth the time and effort for non-experts? Why can't we just leave it as either it's God or it's biology <laughs> and then be done with it? Well, we live in experience and then we reflect. That's our nature. And that's what we're doing here in this show. We are going to reflect on what, how we reflect and mm -hmm. what that's all about. Asking the question is a way to better understand ourselves. And we need to do that. I don't think we can get past the challenges ahead of us without this effort. We aren't going to break away from the controlling hierarchies of the past, nor solve the climate crisis without doing that. We humans are the agents here. We are the actors. We are the causal factor destroying the biosphere and each other. Well, all right then, Joe, that's well said. Let's get started. So what is dualism? By the way, we have done our research for this podcast, and I'm going to rely heavily here on some quotations from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a great resource. I'll just refer to that as Stanford from now on. Before we can talk about dualism, we first have to discuss the idea of materialism, which is the claim that reality consists of matter, which is really shorthand for matter, energy, space, and time. Basically, the universe consists of everything we commonly experience, what we can see, touch, smell, taste, and hear, also what we can measure. All of those material objects are connected to time through the concept of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. Briefly, entropy states that all particles in the universe trend over time toward a state of greater disorder. And that if you want to put things in any locality in the universe back into a higher state of order, you must expend energy, which increases the overall entropy, right? So we can create more order. Ultimately, the whole universe is trending toward disorder. And this leads to the concept of irreversible processes. A quick example of this would be that if you had a bottle of ink and a bucket of water, you can pour the ink into the water, getting a mixture, but you can't reverse the process. You have irreversibly increased the disorder of the system. Left alone, this mixture can't go back in time to the earlier state of separate ink and water. If you want to restore it, you have to boil water, expend a bunch of energy, leaving the concentrated ink behind, right? So that will in turn, you've burned a fuel, you've in increased the overall disorder or entropy of the universe. And I bring this up because a lot of people in religious traditions question the reality of both time and entropy. And I'm here to tell you, <laughs> and I'm sure you agree, Joe, that time and entropy are both very real things with concrete consequences and physicists can prove it. Indeed. Yeah. People mix up ent entropy with complexity. That's not quite it. A low entropy state can be very smooth, like after the Big Bang, a very low entropy situation with very little chaos and a great deal of order. Uh, when the universe cools to the point that the stars are so spread out that the sky will look completely black if we were sitting in the earth looking at it, that's a very high entropy situation and very little order. The process from going from one to the other is where the complexity comes in. Mm -hmm. That's where the structures are, the atoms, the molecules, the stars, the planets, and the galaxy. They form, they do their thing, and then they wink out. Forget the universe, and let's think about coffee. Black coffee in a cup next to creamer of half and half. Like the ink, you mix them together. The pair of separate liquids expresses an order and you mix the two together and you get complex patterns and swirls for a little while. Then the swirls disappear into a muddy mix. The swirls are the middle. They are the complexity, the patterns. 
Life is one of these swirls in the universe. It seems to defy the law of thermodynamics, and religious people always go to that, but it really doesn't. It's the way the shift from low to high entropy creates this temporary complexity that's perfectly within the bounds of the theory. Of course, this happens through time, and physicists talk about the arrow of time that has a direction. Time is also tied to space. That's Einstein's idea. Time without space has no meaning. And the spatial expansion of the universe, all that mixing and swirling, is synonymous with the expansion of time. We live in this space-time medium, and without it, entropy itself would make no sense. Nothing would. Mm -hmm. Cause and effect would not even exist. And yet I know if I jump out a window, the effect would be unpleasant. (laughs) (laughs) We definitely live in a causal universe, that's for sure. Right. (laughs) And so the question keeps arising, why do I fall anyhow? It's the law of gravity. Okay, what is that? It's about asking questions here. That's what we're going to be doing today. Mm -hmm. Um, Gravity is a vector equation that describes how every particle attracts every other particle in the universe with a force that's directly proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between their centers. You may have, uh, may not have heard of that one. Basic physics, basic calculus. We we all learned it. And if you went to engineering school, which we both did, (laughs) and it describes what gravity does beautifully. Uh, But what is it? It's a law that governs the universe. But what is it? Well, it just is, right? That's what we can say. Mm -hmm. That's what we could have said about the diversity of life prior to Darwin. It just is. The world's diverse. Fortunately, humans are more curious than that. And it is the questions themselves that matter. We need to keep asking them even if they are inconvenient to the accepted orthodoxy of the moment, mm-hmm. right? So, what is materialism? It's stuff, and there's nothing but stuff. We will elaborate on that a bit more, don't worry. But first, let me ask this, just a thought experiment here. Through time, things change. There's birth, decay, and death. There are cycles. The material stuff of the universe constantly recycles. Mm-hmm. What of the patterns themselves? What then is more fundamental? Is the stuff or is the law that creates the shape and the patterns of the universe that in turn is created in this process of entropy that we just talked about? Is the math itself fundamental? Like the law of gravity? It's a mathematical equation. Is it the law um, of gravity that's the real nature of the universe? The math behind it? then what are these laws that shape reality? What is this information that tells the planets where to go and things to fall? What about the laws that create the patterns of life? Are they a part of the material or are they something different? Is consciousness in the same way, in the same informational way, part of the material or is it separate? So you see, the questions that were uh, about mind and consciousness is connected to the question of how to understand reality itself. Uh, I bet you didn't know you were signing up for this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, probably not. This is what it comes down to. If you want to understand the world, you have to keep peeling back the layers. You have to keep going deeper. And our part in the world, in the universe, as conscious beings is such an important part. And so... Right. You know, this is why this sort of disagreement exists, because it's very hard for people to connect who we are to the larger universe that's out there. And 
So a lot of people get confused by the basic description of materialism because they think it's about their five senses. They say, well, right. instead of these laws, right, that affect everything, they say, what about the things that we can't see that are real? And of course, we can't see radio waves or infrared light, but they're still material because we can detect them with instruments. We can't see microbes or viruses or elementary particles, but they sure do affect us. A lot of us died or spent the last year at home because of a virus we couldn't see. Invisible electrons transferred through your body from an electrical wire can make your muscles jerk or stop your heart. High energy ionizing radiation you can't see or feel will destroy your cell DNA, and if you get too much, it will kill you. So let's define materialism or physicalism according to Stanford. Quote, Physicalism is the thesis that everything is physical, or as contemporary philosophers sometimes put it, that everything supervenes on the physical. Of course, physicalists don't deny that the world might contain many items that at first glance don't seem physical, items of a biological or psychological or moral or social nature. But they insist nevertheless that at the end of the day, such items are either physical or supervene on the physical. So that's kind of straightforward, right? Supervene just means dependent on. We can't have moral or psychological or social constructs without the physical objects that make up the universe in our bodies. While inert, a rock has no moral agency. When picked up and thrown at someone, the rock becomes a weapon, a passive participant in a morally questionable act. But we're here to talk about stuff today, not ethics. <laughs> Materialism or physicalism is a form of monism, this idea that everything in the universe is composed of the same stuff, the chemical elements, the electromagnetic spectrum, atoms, and subatomic particles. Materialism says that's all there is. Okay, ideas and laws and social and intersubjective agreements are superimposed on this underlying physical reality. And even if we later in the far future were to discover new physics like multiverses or alternate dimensions like subspace and Star Trek, there's still all part of the physicalist or materialist monism, a universe governed by physical laws of cause and effect, a place where objects generally behave according to repeatable, predictable, testable conditions. So far, so good? Yeah, there's so many ways of going about this topic, so many variations, so many questions. We have the mind and we have the spirit, and those concepts are both tied and separate in our discourse. It's not always easy to make a distinction because of that. A lot of confusion. It's really quite a mess, honestly. And I think it's helpful to start by understanding that these terms themselves are historical and have evolved over time, and they're shaped by the prevailing ideologies that have dominated Western thought. The emergence of science and materialism in the Renaissance happened in the context of having to challenge the totalizing rule of the church. That really explains a lot. At first, there was great hostility to any new ideas, and the church orthodoxy stomped all this new thought down. But eventually, new, the new thinking and also some ancient forms that were brought back of thought began to break through this orthodoxy. And it was bloody and it was messy. But eventually, a basic agreement between science and religion evolved out of that struggle. The birth of scientific materialism had to fit in somehow. Talking about the mind rather than the spirit came out of this effort. Descartes' thesis was that the mind and body are distinct. This allowed the material to be explored by early scientists without challenging the core of the earlier religious beliefs. And it evolved into this hardened sort of mind-body dualism. This is where the Western modern conception of, of dualism came from. And as Western thought began to include non-religious elements, eventually leading to science, 
the whole argument really took on new forms. And these different traditions still hold sway today. Some arose from religion and some are very esoteric and involve the realms of spirit. In theology, you have soul and heaven. In folklore, you have ghosts and so forth. And in philosophy, you have Descartes, who's best known by inculculating this sort of dualist belief system within our changing Western paradigm, really. And there are many variations on the theme, but really, what's really the crux of dualism? What are the key distinctions that now hold sway over our contemporary ideas? Like, for example, how does all this affect our notions about consciousness? That's what we're here to talk about. Mm -hmm. We probably have to say a bit more about dualism first to give it some flesh. Sorry, <laughs> the pun was there. I had to do it. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, okay, so let's talk about what dualism actually proposes. It proposes that the material universe is not all there is, that physical objects right. can also be affected by non-physical forces. And this idea undergirds the Abrahamic religions and also most purportedly non-religious forms of spirituality, including nature religions and most Eastern spiritual philosophy. Now, what I'm referring to here is the spirit matter dualism, which is a highly prevalent idea that there's another sort of functional universe that's off limits to our senses and off limits to scientific testing or measurement. And that's the key right there off limits to scientific testing or measurement. And that's why the card face palm, right? <laughs> and as you mentioned, Joe, this was discussed by Plato and Descartes and countless other philosophers as mind-body dualism, which is related to spirit matter dualism, but it's not exactly the same. Mind-body dualists claim that the mind or identity or thought is a kind of separate substance from the body. Spirit matter dualism, on the other hand, involves souls and nature spirits and gods and devils. The spirit world is claimed to be the place where your spirit or soul goes when you die. So the afterlife. Curses, hexes, hauntings, goblins, fairies, bad omens all come from the spirit world. Heaven, hell, purgatory, the astral plane, the rainbow <laughs> bridge, dream time. I mean, you see this through the legends and religions and kind of culture of the entire world. This is a right. almost universal sort of concept. And so in terms of modern science, these things are baseless. They can't be accessed. They can't be tested. You can't get a hold of them. So let's read what Stanford says about dualism. Quote, dualist views say that the mental and the physical are both real and neither can be assimilated to the other. In some, we can say that there is a mind-body problem because both consciousness and thought broadly construed, seem very different from anything physical, and there is no convincing consensus on how to build a satisfactory unified picture of creatures possessed of both a mind and a body. In dualism, mind is contrasted with body, but at different times, different aspects of the mind have been the center of attention. In the classical and medieval periods, it was the intellect that was thought to be the most obviously resistant to a materialistic account. From Descartes forward, the main stumbling block to materialist monism was supposed to be consciousness, of which phenomenal consciousness or sensation came to be considered as the paradigm instance. The classical emphasis originates in Plato's Phaedo. Plato believed that the true substances are not physical bodies, which are ephemeral, but the eternal forms of which bodies are imperfect copies." End quote. Now, without getting too deep into Plato's world of forms, he was really insistent that because of all the imperfections he saw in the physical world, there had to be a place where there were things that were perfect. And this is where it all got started. Perfect circles, perfect love, and even perfect thought. 
This makes sense as an abstraction that we can imagine what perfection would look like or be like, but it does not follow from that proposition that there is an actual place where perfection exists in actuality. Right. I, I, I just think Plato was making some pretty bold assumptions. Of course, we know a lot more than he did back then, but what, what do you think about this? Well, the early Christian church was definitely influenced by Plato, but by the Middle Ages, even Plato's ideas, much of Greek philosophy was forgotten. Mm -hmm. And speaking of entropy, the tendency towards destruction, decay, and chaos was framed as a direct result of man's disobedience on <laughs> earth. Right? Plato gave Christianity the idea that heaven has no entropy because it's perfect, so put, put it in those terms. Well, we can see it gets really wrapped up there with original sin, right? Right, right, right. Uh, the effects of Plato's teachings, though, are still influencing Christianity today because they were reintroduced during the Renaissance. These teachings are largely responsible for the ethereal perfection image that you mentioned, Sean, of heaven in popular culture in general. But let's point out that this Platonic view of heaven is not biblical. The Old Testament framed heaven differently as a restoration of our physical universe, one which includes a new resurrected earth. So Christian thought is a mishmash of beliefs today. Mm -hmm. What's common though, is this idea of the afterlife. What happens when a society believes that some form of perfection comes after death, but only if one follows the rule. It speaks to power and control for those who enforce these cosmic rules. You refuse to go along with it and it's off to the eternal suffering and hell with you. These power dynamics are a reminder that this conversation isn't simply intellectual curiosity. These ideas manifest in the world directly and powerfully. They still do today. What are the consequences of believing that a universe is one way or another, and in turn, the nature of the mind? It's actually quite important that it's these ideas, that is why these ideas are so contested. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's really, when you bring that up like that, okay, you realize that you cannot have a belief in hell without dualism. Right. Hell, where is it? I mean, where is this place, right? Is it in a volcano? No, it's nowhere. Okay. If you believe in a material universe, there could be no such thing as a hell or a heaven. It's incoherent, but somehow this has worked its way into our collective social contract consciousness that this exists, that there will be punishment for people, uh, and they will not be allowed to join this perfect platonic world of forms. So it's right. all connected like this. And it's also connected to the idea of consciousness. And so aside from Plato, what are, are some of the more common dualistic ideas about how the mind works? And from Stanford, here's what Aristotle said. Aristotle did not believe in platonic forms existing independently of their instances. Aristotelian forms are the natures and properties of things and exist embodied in those things. This enabled Aristotle to explain the union of body and soul by saying that the soul is the form of the body. This means that a particular person's soul is no more than his nature as a human being. I will stop for a second because this pisses off a lot of Christians. This is why Christians don't like Aristotle, yeah. right? Okay, continuing with the quote, because this seems to make the soul into a property of the body, it led many interpreters, both ancient and modern, to interpret his theory as materialistic. Aristotle believed that the intellect, though part of the soul, differs from other faculties in not having a bodily organ. His argument for this constitutes a more tightly argued case than Plato's for the immateriality of thought and hence for a kind of dualism. 
he argued that the intellect must be immaterial because if it were material, it could not receive all forms, just as the eye, because of its particular physical nature, is sensitive to light but not to sound, and the ear to sound and not to light. So if the intellect were in a physical organ, it could be sensitive only to a restricted range of physical things, but this is not the case for we can think about any kind of material object, end quote. So it's really interesting. It's kind of a middle ground position here, right? But he was very close to our modern concept of consciousness, but he just didn't understand how the brain worked. <laughs> right. Well, once again, I, I think a historical perspective is useful here. As I said before, Plato was reintroduced back into Western thought during the Renaissance. And it really did shape the way society came to understand the question of mind and spirit and how they relate to nature and materialism. During the Renaissance, these questions were up front and center. That re-examination in turn influenced the evolution of scientific thought. Over time, science focused more and more on the material to the point where the mind was wholly excluded for a while, left to the philosophers and the theologians. The mind-body problem was solved by relegating each to different separate disciplines, basically. Mm -hmm. So for example, Darwin said nothing about the mind. It wasn't allowed as a scientific subject. This ban did not end until Freud, in the early part of the 20th century, brought it back. Mm -hmm. Around the same time in modern physics, the nature of matter underwent a revolution that asked the question, what is the material? I suspect how to frame this question is where Sean and I differ, and we should talk about that later. But there are more things to say about Cartesian dualism and how it came to be a part of the evolution of Western thought. So, yes, now we have to talk about Cartesian dualism. From Stanford, quote, Descartes was a substance dualist. He believed that there were two kinds of substance, matter, of which the essential property is that it is spatially extended, and mind, of which the essential property is that it thinks. Descartes' conception of the relation between mind and body was quite different from that held in the Aristotelian tradition. For Aristotle, there is no exact science of matter. How matter behaves is essentially affected by the form that is in it. You cannot combine just any matter with any form. You cannot make a knife out of butter nor a human being out of paper. So the nature of the matter is a necessary condition for the nature of the substance, end quote. I mean, we stand on the shoulders of giants. I say this all the time and we know too much, but because when you read about this, he Descartes is talking about a kind of alchemic essentialism, thinking right. stuff versus body stuff. I mean, what even is that, right? He believed that the essence of a substance determined its function, and that's very similar to how primitive alchemists thought that matter was composed of ether and air and earth and fire and water. They didn't know about chemistry, electricity, phase changes of matter into solids, liquids, or gases, or oxidation or combustion. So they put both matter and physical or chemical changes like fire into simplified essentialist categories. And that's exactly okay what Descartes did when he was talking about thinking stuff and body stuff, right? Right. right. So. These early philosophers couldn't possibly have understood the idea that our thoughts arose from electrochemical impulses in the brain from the interaction of 100 billion neurons. I mean, I think they barely thought about numbers that large. And so, stranger still, this was all pre-Darwin, so they couldn't have known about evolution in general or at all about our brains being formed through an evolutionary process, just like our bodies. And that explains, of course, why all human beings have broadly similar thoughts and desires. We know that our minds evolved. So it's just glaring to me when I read primitive philosophical theories about how little these people actually knew about what makes us tick. Yeah, let's talk about that shift between the old and the new thinking. In the 20th century, Freud brought back the mind back into science and the discipline of psychology was created. 
as the 20th century unfolded, more and more scientific discoveries led to a deeper examination into the material. Anatomy and physiology used advances in technology, and the progression was from organs to tissues to cells to molecules, and all of that biochemistry associated with that. Neuroscience as the material study of the brain used more and more sophisticated scanning devices to map the brain functions. From that, we get the contemporary materialist monist view of the mind as being based on the brain. Uh, and it's a direct challenge to this Cartesian dualism that you just described, Sean. Mm -hmm. And honestly, what is critical to understand here is a split between science and other realms of understanding, like philosophy, theology, that occurred in the 19th century. That split still informs the collective human thinking today. Most of humanity still rejects the scientific viewpoint on the mind to varying degrees. Many scientists who are religious or spiritual will literally split those two parts of their thinking into separate realms. They are materialists in their work and spiritual in their lives. It's a powerfully culturally imposed dichotomy, right? I mean, there's people who don't believe in evolution still. Absolutely. And so on this societal level, this dichotomy continues to create a lot of tension. Mm -hmm. the, the power struggle never ended with the modern age. They're basically varying positions that challenge the material mind-brain connection established by conventional science today. There are the theologians and folk culturalists who insist on the spirit world of one kind or another, and some of them delve into the pseudoscientific to legitimize their beliefs. We'll talk about that a little bit later. There is a small but growing minority within science, however, a scattering of theologians and lots of philosophers who are trying to integrate material science with a sort of spiritual view of existence. I mean, good luck with that, right? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> well, the word spiritual is so bloated, right? With contradictions yeah. and meanings as to be fairly useless in our discussion here. Yeah. But it is used so widely. My own view is that I stand against the former, but I am open to the ideas of the latter, as long as they don't directly contradict the scientific theories. Mm -hmm. The Earth is 4.55 billion years old, no matter what some may believe. Same with evolution and so forth. Still, if one takes the route of challenging scientific orthodoxy, one is treading in dangerous cognitive waters. Without a solid scientific education, what is pseudoscience versus real science can be really difficult to assess. As a firm materialist, Sean uh, <laughs> may have something to say about this. <laughs> well, Joe, look, I mean, here's the problem is that a lot of this stuff really conflicts with people's desires. The dualist spiritual worldview is something that a lot of people are really heavily invested in. And this is something that it it, it is become so pervasive. I've been talking to people about these subjects for 20, 25 years. And I, I want to briefly touch on something now that I've run across a lot, which sort of combines the spirit matter and mind-body dualism. There's a widespread belief that our mind is basically a receiving station for the mind of God or some higher power or universal consciousness. I talked about this, I think it was like 2007, in an article I wrote for the Black Sun Journal called The Radio Wave Argument. And because science still doesn't fully understand consciousness, believers reason, we must in some form be connected to a higher consciousness. How can a three pound blob of meat be responsible for everything we experience is what people say. And what this does is it just, it devalues our humanity. It devalues our connection to the natural world. 
but because of this, many people seem to feel that there just must be a connection to something larger, uh, which is, it's, if you think about it, that's an, such an inferiority complex, right? <laughs> what is this something more? What is this larger thing that everybody wants to be a part of? We're already, I mean, the pale blue dot, right? We're already this tiny little dot in the universe. And yet that is where everything that has been a part of human history has occurred. And so, I don't know, it's just it, people feel, they want to feel small. It's like they don't want to feel that this is something significant right here in our brains. And during spiritual experiences or meditation or while on hallucinogenic drugs, people project their consciousness out into the universe and they get this feeling that it's ineffable. They can't describe it of oneness with everything. And so they don't somehow connect that could come from right here inside their cranium. And I feel like in a lot of ways, this form of the argument is the god of the gaps. They have the powerful feeling, but they don't understand it scientifically. So they conclude that it has to be something larger, at very least external to their bodies. And it's very similar to, again, the early philosophers who couldn't fathom the existence of 100 billion neurons, 100 trillion connections, possible connections between our neurons. That's where the real action is, okay? And can you even imagine uh, with your engineering background, the mathematical permutations of a hundred trillion neural connections? <clears throat> it's just a mind boggling number that we no. can't imagine. And, and because that number is so large and the combinations are so large and rich, this to me fully explains the diversity of human experience. And I have no problem understanding it. I don't, I, I don't have to think about being a, a receiving station for anything because uh, I, I know what's going on in here, at least on a theoretical level. And so to me, this God of the gaps argument just represents kind of a failure of comprehension, a failure of imagination combined with a proof burden shifting. They fall back on the idea that negative proof is impossible. They assert we can't prove that some external force is not acting on our brains and giving rise to our experiences. And then that's where the stalemate happens. Mm. Well, that's very interesting. And now we're getting to the nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree with you mostly, Sean, but I do differ in one important point. And first, let me say how I agree. I mean, the science of the brain should not be ignored any more than the science of geology or evolution. The claim that the brain is some kind of receiver of cosmic consciousness is flawed based on our current evidence. That there is an afterlife is unsupported by scientific thought, scientific knowledge. According to the evidence, it is undeniable that the brain function explains the mind. And also, let's add that people really desperately want to believe in continued existence after death. I mean, mm -hmm. you alluded to this, Sean. People want to believe in God. So to say that the mind is somehow separate and related to this God state relieves a lot of existential angst. Right. We want to believe that there's more to consciousness than just the brain because we need to believe it. Mm -hmm. And if you are interested in the truth, that belief is a big red flag, right? Yeah, of course it is. Right. Where I would disagree with you is that we have to untangle religious ideology from this God is in the gap position. Not all who challenge a hard materialist position are doing it from, a, from that perspective. There are, in fact, scientists who consider themselves atheists who challenge parts of the conventional materialist view. Yeah, that's where I kind of go, hmm, because I haven't done a lot of the reading about these scientists that you're talking about, and I would really be interested to hear what are those real <clears throat> scientific challenges? Who's making them and what they're based on? What kind of evidence are they using to challenge the materialist view? And I know we're going to touch on this a little bit later. We talk about Buddhism yeah. and Robert Lanza's concept of biocentrism, but possibly we could get more deeply into these scientific challenges to materialism on another episode, because 
I, yes. look, I just want to know what's true. I'm not here to try to say uh, that it has to be one thing or the other. If it's true, if there really was a, a, a God station out there that we were all receiving, I'd like to know about it. I, it. It would be an exciting discovery on the level of making contact with aliens or something. So, right. But it seems to me that it's extremely unlikely and it, it's really tough to challenge materialism without invoking some undefined spooky magic of some sort. And speaking of that, I want to touch on two final forms of dualism in pop culture. Okay. And the first is the matrix idea that we're somehow all brains being stored in vats or pods somewhere. And this whole world is an illusion being simulated either for our enjoyment on the one hand or for our enslavement. There's a lot of people who look right. at it as both like, like this world of Maya and illusion of pleasure and pain and all that is actually slavery, a form of slavery. That's kind of what Buddhists think. And we just need to get out of here, get the hell out of here and, and right. go to Nirvana where we can reunite with the universal mind or whatever it is. So that is one thing. And I, I felt like when those Matrix movies came out, it kind of set popular philosophy back a generation because you got all these people who are believing that we're all sitting in pods somewhere, right? So then there's another notion. And these things, they just keep coming. There's one behind the other. As soon as you knock one down, another one comes up. And this was popularized by philosopher Nick Bostrom and to a lesser extent, Elon Musk, that the entire universe is being simulated on a much larger computer somewhere, right? And this again is frustrating. It is no different than heaven. Where is this computer or hell? Where's this magical computer on a nine-year-old's desk that he that is it is running this ancestor simulation, right? And, and that's who we are. I mean, it just, there's no mechanism, no evidence. It's untestable. And therefore I give zero credibility to either the matrix or the simulation argument. They're just, to me, super annoying rabbit holes that stone people at parties love to drone on about. And I find them as dumb <laughs> as the idea of heaven or hell, completely untestable, paranoid nonsense in my view. What do you think? Well, it makes for great stories. Uh, I mean, I love science fiction, bring it on, baby. But as far as reality, they're mere speculation without proof. So I agree with you, Sean. But the larger question here is about credibility. What should be credible? My own position is that science has not settled a critical question. Although I am very much scientifically minded, there is a critical question to this discussion. What is the material? And yes, I realize there has been a lot of pseudoscience around quantum physics and a mm -hmm. lot of matrix style speculation. And we should, we really should be wary of these narratives for the reasons that you mentioned. However, we know that evolution takes advantage of nature. Why should it not also do that with subatomic phenomena? Materialists argue that the spookiness at the quantum level is wholly distinct from the macro level. The weirdness cancels out in the macro, in other words. That need not be the case. Granted, it is fair to argue that we should assume it is the case until proven otherwise, but that does not equal to stating it is a natural law that the quantum and the macro realms are somehow two sets of rules and never the twain shall meet. That is not how science works. To say the question is not settled, that there is more to discover is not necessarily a cognitive bias, although it can be, because the theologians and others use that rationale does not invalidate the possibility that more will be discovered. One simple way of looking at science is that it is a means of discovering and validating the natural parts of the supernatural, and then rejecting the rest. Mm -hmm. 
Going back to that progression in biology from organs to molecules, it stands to reason that an examination will continue to, towards the subatomic. We are already seeing it. There is an emerging field called quantum biology, which has shown tantalizing evidence of the quantum effects at the macro level. If so, then it is reasonable to assume that there is still a lot more to discover about brain biology and the nature of mind. Yeah. Are these things we currently conceive of as spiritual that may be indeed real in some level? Could they be natural phenomena? I would say it is certainly the case that we'll discover more. Mm -hmm. The fact that the brain does create the mind does not preclude the possibility that our understanding of the brain improves. We may find some spiritual beliefs are indeed natural. One does not need to be a dualist to conceive of such a possibility. Well, I want to just like interject here that, sure. like I said, with the God projection to our minds, right? Like if that were actually provable, if that could be proven true, I'd really like to know about it. And the same thing with all of these quantum assumptions about how consciousness works and consciousness affecting matter and all those things. Like it would be exciting stuff if we could actually get into that and prove it. But the problem people have is they project their own preconceptions into the unknown. Whenever there's something that's unknown, they are ready to run with it. And I think that so far, all of the evidence suggests that the answers are going to be in here. Now, do we understand fundamental particles? No, we don't. And so as that unfolds, the answers are still going to be in here, right? <laughs> so I don't want to be guilty of the same thing that I'm accusing other people of, but there are sort of probabilistic ways that we can look at the unknown and say, these things are likely, these things are, are less likely. And I, I wish that everyone in the spiritual worldview had that kind of mental discipline. Great point. And they don't. And we get a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon whenever any scientist makes any kind of claims that may somehow even tangentially be connected to their own beliefs about God or the spirit world, they'll jump right on it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that invalidates the whole question. That's the problem. Right. But think about things like this. For example, when people create together, mm -hmm. like play music together, there's this sort of synergy that occurs. Same with sports. There's also true in a destructive sense, right? Like mob mentalities. What about the experience of unity and connection people describe and other such philosophical states? Are these things fully explained by current understandings? Perhaps you're right. And they are but perhaps they're not. Perhaps there's more that we can learn. Science should explore these phenomena outside the mind-body dualism framework that history has passed on to us. That framework is a stumbling block. And I think that's what you're talking about as well. When people constantly jump on this bandwagon to proclaim their own biases because of what some scientists might have said, it should not be a contest about which is real, dualism or naturalism. And I agree with you that I'm a naturalist. I'm not a dualist, but the, the contest itself should be, it really should be about a deeper examination. It should be about empiricism. For sure. Right. Yeah, right? And, and if you, and, if, you know, talking about what your example about the, about crowds, mobs, or musicians, or sports, those mm -hmm. situations, those come very close to kind of religious experiences. I mean, I, I know myself as somebody coming out of having had a strong religious background that the most powerful experiences that I have outside of religion are at concerts. But 
to me, that's all fully explainable by the fact that you're in this extravaganza of sight and sound and, and you have this feeling of all these people there. I mean, our brains are moving as one. And that doesn't take a supernatural connection to explain that. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't take a dualist view either. No. Right. And what I'm saying is it's this contest between the, of the hard question, right? Consciousness that tends to frame the research and the discussion and all that. And we need to just move away from that contest in a way. I know that the dualists don't want to do that, no. but as scientists, we are empiricists and we need to try to put all of that stuff to the side when we examine the natural world. Yeah, I mean, we know that there's going to be tons of surprises, right? And that's why I love science so much, because you make a new discovery, it changes everything, right? But we have to wait. A lot of people don't want to wait. They want to project their desires about Great how point. they yes. think it works into the unknown. And so we have these extremely strong cultural trends that tend to overshadow what we really know and what the real state of science currently is. And so let's move on to what we do know about mm -hmm. consciousness. Okay. We don't have time to cover uh, no. this vast subject all on this show, but I will recommend some good books in the show notes about it. And so what's the most modern view of consciousness that we have? There's three scholars that I follow, and there, there are many others, of course, but there's three in particular who I'm going to mention today that have come closest to describing what's really happening in our skulls. And they are Ray Kurzweil, Marvin Minsky, and Daniel Dennett. Ray Kurzweil wrote The Singularity is Near in 2005 and How to Create a Mind in 2012. The late Marvin Minsky wrote The Emotion Machine in 2006. He sadly died in 2016. Daniel Dennett wrote Consciousness Explained in 1991, and he's written about 20 other books since then. He's a really great guy, and he also has some good talks on YouTube that are really awesome, so check him out. But there's a few statements from these books that have really stuck with me. Ray Kurzweil said, consciousness is what the brain does. And he also said, consciousness is subjectivity. And in his books, he's proposed what he calls the pattern recognition theory of mind. In The Emotion Machine, Marvin Minsky distinguishes sentience as the capacity to engage in self-reflective thinking. That is, not only does a sentient being have the ability to direct its own consciousness, change its focus, and pursue goal-oriented tasks, but it has the ability to reflect on its own selfhood, recognizing and changing its own patterns of thought to a different state. Now, there's a strong consensus among nearly all students of consciousness that the brain is an extremely sophisticated computer. A lot of dualists don't like that. but. It's not a computer like your phone or your laptop, but it's still a computer, one that uses massively parallel processing through the making and breaking of neural connections. And there have been many attempts to both observe and recreate the brain's function. These include, number one, scanning the brain with functional magnetic resonance imaging and correlating observed neural firing patterns with reported thoughts. That's really important because if you can connect what an MRI is seeing in your brain with what a person is experiencing, like thinking of a word or a picture, and then you get a, a specific pattern that connects consciousness to the brain in a very concrete way. And the other way is number two is the use of transcranial magnetic stimulation, basically powerful magnets that go in and they temporarily disable parts of the brain and they observe changes in behavior. So we can connect certain brain regions to certain behavior, memory, whether it's facial recognition, language, all of those types of things, you can knock those out in someone's brain. And so it follows from there that 
region of the brain is probably what's doing that processing. Okay. Then there's been a, a lot of work that's being done, the Blue Brain Project and some other ones, the functional recreation of small parts of the brain, such as a cortical column made of about 10,000 neurons, okay, using a computer simulation. And they've gotten them to function on the computer pretty much how they function in real life. So again, we're finding the building blocks of consciousness here, but we haven't put the puzzle together. There's also been the connection of the brain, this is number four, to real world prosthetic devices, allowing people or research primates to learn to control a cursor on the screen with their mind, or to move an artificial limb to connect primitive sensing devices such as cameras and microphones to replace damaged eyes and ears. There are people right now who can hear and see to a limited degree who are missing their eyes and ears. And they're doing that through using video cameras and microphones tied directly into their brain. So these projects have revealed beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's possible to observe and modify and tap into brain activity. Something physical is definitely happening in our brains that correlates directly to our thoughts and experiences. Underscoring this point, we've also seen those videos of rat and insect brains being used successfully to control mechanical robots. So brains are real. They, they do what we think yeah. they do. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned some very exciting research there, Sean. There's no question that's a clear correlation between brain activity and consciousness. And anyone says otherwise is really not looking at the science at all. It can be mapped by various scanning devices, as you said. And based on the science, there are researchers who are creating a diagnostic device that can determine if someone is conscious, self-aware. The applications are pretty staggering. Is this person in a coma aware of her surrounding? We've all heard that story. Mm -hmm. What other species show this level of consciousness? At what stage does a fetus show this consciousness, if any? Mm -hmm. But of course, we would have to know that this device is working properly, right? <laughs> this is huge yeah. questions, right? Let's untangle some of these terms here, if you don't mind. Consciousness, as you said, is in the most basic sense, what we experience. Two other terms that describe that a bit more come to mind, sentience and sapience. Sentience is the fact that we feel things subjectively. I see a dog and it makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. Sapience is knowing that we experience and then analyze that experience. I know that I am seeing a dog. I know that owning a dog has benefits. I know that we should protect dogs. Yeah, these are common experiences of consciousness that we all recognize. And yet what's missing is the answer to David Chalmers hard problem of consciousness, which is according to Wikipedia, quote, the problem of explaining why and how we have qualia or phenomenal experiences often described as experiences that feel like something as you're talking about with a dog. In comparison, we assume that there are no such experiences for inanimate things like, for instance, a thermostat, a toaster, a computer, or a sophisticated form of artificial intelligence, end quote. Qualia describe how we experience certain common perceptions. If you imagine right now, for example, what it feels like to you to see the color red it's an open question as to whether other people have that same experience when they observe light having a wavelength of around 632 nanometers. In other words, the wavelength of light doesn't change, but different people could see it differently. And we, we yeah. had that famous internet illusion of the dress or the, there's all right. these perceptual illusions that we have. Some of those are just kind of nonsense, but others really do have to do with qualia. Like, and it's an important question because we need to answer, could a person born blind imagine what that experience of the color red is like. And I'm not sure that they could.
So furthermore, why do people have conscious awareness at all? Why does the neural activity we can observe in a human brain from the outside have to feel like anything at all from the inside? This is what it kind of hurts my head to think about because, mm. you know, evolution could have not given us conscious experience, right? Just turned us into what Daniel Dennett calls philosophical zombies, right? Uh, why are we self-aware at all? Oh, that's a great question. And it has some staggering implications. Some physicalists or materialists will argue consciousness isn't truly real. Some don't go that far and posit consciousness is a real phenomena, but argue that it's generated by the brain. Mm -hmm. Once it is generated, it has agency beyond just stimuli. This is where I find the materialist view problematic, honestly. How does agency arise from the material? It's not explained. It's an assumption. Mm -hmm. Back to zombies, if there is no real consciousness, but only the appearance of consciousness, and we are simply responding to stimuli, no matter how complex, what does that say about free will? Right. And in turn, what does that say about morality? What does it say about our legal system? How can we hold anyone accountable? Yeah, these are really important questions, but they all still rest on this foundation that we have a seat of consciousness somehow, that we are self-aware. And yes. there's been all sorts of attempts, pre-scientific uh, ideas that like we have a little homunculus, a little guy sitting there, you know, and, but the thing about it is that the homunculus idea doesn't solve the problem because no. why is the homunculus conscious? It's just a sort of a nested explanation that it's turtles all the way down. Does the homunculus have another homunculus? Like where is this thing? And that's why it's called the hard problem of consciousness. Yes. And Steven Pinker, he also talked about this as being the ghost in the machine. Mm -hmm. And this was part three of his book, The Blank Slate. And it was it's really excellent the way he goes through and discusses a lot of the things that we're talking about today and really kind of debunks it. But the important thing that we still know is that people just can't seem to wrap their minds around the idea that ourselves that we experience reside inside a hunk of neural tissue. And right. that what looks like gray goo from the outside can feel like something from the inside. So I've had to think about this over the years uh, quite a bit, and I came up with a not very original metaphor of a car to describe it. It's kind of like we're all driving in this car of our mind. We've all been driving in it since birth. You can't get out of the car. And we see that other people are driving their cars. So we know that other people have a conscious experience. They tell us they're conscious. They tell us they're feeling certain things, but we can't ever get out of our own car to see what it would be like to observe ourselves from someone else's point of view. And even if we could, the difference in qualia might mean that we couldn't interpret that experience mm. effectively. Like yeah. I know where the gas pedal and the brake and the radio and air conditioning are in my own car, but if I got into someone else's car or mine, the controls and instruments would be a completely different places. And I wouldn't necessarily be able to really replicate their experience because my experience is dependent on how my brain developed from birth. So. That's why even though we're aware of the existence of other minds, we're also hopelessly stuck in our own subjectivity. So I don't know how you deal with this, Joe. I mean, does this hurt <laughs> your brain as much as it hurts mine? <laughs> All I can say is, oi. Yeah. <laughs> I've read and watched a lot of stories about mind switching and mind melding and all that. Can't say I've ever experienced it myself. I've never switched cars. I have no idea how light with a wavelength of 634 nanometers looks to others, the color red. 
And this limitation speaks to the general limitation on relying on subjective experience to define reality. And yet we must try. The question itself matters and has profound ethical implications. Yeah. And I really want to bring the discussion home because understanding consciousness as a unitary function of the physical material brain really is the final solution to the mind-body dualism problem and also the spirit-matter dualism problem. Once we solve consciousness, dualism goes away forever. Once we can wrap our minds around the abstraction that all of our life experiences is what being a piece of meat feels like, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's hard to imagine. But once we can do this, we unify ourselves not only with the matter of the entire universe, but also with other life. How can we torture or kill an animal or another human being when yes. we realize that their experiences are nearly identical to our own? There are no chosen people. There are no outcasts, right? We're all just material brains. And to me, if there's any enlightenment to be had in life, it's this one startling realization that we are both nature and matter and both nature and matter are us. Hey, I like my wetware. <laughs> me too. <laughs> But let's turn this question around, Sean. I mean, looking at the world in a dualist way has implications. It's not just an agree to disagree situation. It's a profound change in the way we see humanity. Because if you think about it, I mean, look at religions across the world. When you posit that there's a separateness between the body and the mind, which always comes first? Which is on the top? It's usually the mind, if not the always. The mind and the spirit, right? yet. <laughs> yeah. And so what does that mean? What does that do to us? Well, it creates a situation where we really are oppressing people based on their bodies. And we right. see that across history. We see that with the history of patriarchy, with homophobia and so forth. We see how the body is always a means of control, right? It's a means to be able to take people and shape them in the form that you want them because the body is seen as inferior to the mind and the mind has you know the power over it and of course if you in the religious system if you dictate what the mind is it's associated with god and so forth that gives you the power to control the bodies well that's a super important point joe because it's just what it's done to us it, it, it's splitting off ourselves from the material universe into spirit has caused people to look down upon the physical body as base or crass and our physical existence as some sort of dress rehearsal or temporary illusion. Spirituality just permeates so many social assumptions that devalue the body and above all our animal existence. The sense of yeah. shame is really staggering when you think about it. And also this idea of karma and caste and people being ranked. You know, this is what we at the right. radical secular are so much against and why we rail so much against hierarchy. And it really has its origin in dualism. And so there are real moral implications of the kind of progress we're making, especially toward creating artificial consciousness. And exactly, yeah. That will free us to imagine a different kind of social hierarchy. Now, what Kurzweil believes about consciousness is that it's a kind of natural function of computational complexity. He therefore also believes that if we build sophisticated enough machines that can communicate with us, they will eventually claim to be conscious and we will believe them. And in so saying, Kurzweil sidesteps the hard problem of consciousness. If machines ever do attain consciousness, what will it be that makes them? And Kurzweil doesn't know. 
and we don't know, and we can't know until we make that discovery or series of discoveries that we haven't yeah. made yet. And this is where the ethical dilemma comes in. The new ethical dilemmas we'll be facing. What will differentiate a non-sentient robot, for example, that we can ethically own or treat as our servant to clean our house or be a sex robot from a sentient, conscious, mechanical being that deserves human rights? These are difficult questions that we will need to face as we begin to bring advanced AI and robotics into our civilization. We know that sci-fi has tried to grapple with this subject. You remember the Star Trek episode, The Measure of a Man, where Data is put on trial to determine whether he is the property of Starfleet or whether he'll be granted personhood. It's one of the better Star Trek episodes. So if we want mechanical servants without imposing a whole new era of oppression and suffering, we'll have to settle for keeping them as non-sentient machines. And we'll have to know that they are not sentient. And how will we know until we define consciousness? So using sentient machines as domestic or factory workers brings up ugly issues reminiscent of slavery that I don't really want to have to face. We no. better all get this right. No. So Kurzweil assumes that sentient robots will ultimately be granted personhood, but he also recognized in his film on the subject that robot racism and mistreatment would be a huge problem. By the way, this is also the subject of Andrew Sweet's book, Models and Citizens, and I'm looking forward to interviewing him about that in the near future. Yeah, that sounds great. There's a lot of great science fiction stories to refer to here, including, of course, Star Trek. <laughs> you guys know we have to bring that in every show, right? Every show. <laughs> it's a must for Radical Secular. Data is one of the most compelling characters in the whole show. He's an allegory of what it means not only to be human, but to be a person with all the accrued rights of personhood. Another great character in Star Trek that speaks to this issue is the Doctor in Voyager. He's a hologram, not a robot or an android. He's a computer simulation, a program that has become part of the crew. And there are a number of episodes that examine his rights and status and others like him they encounter other holographic beings. Yeah, absolutely. And it's no accident that both of these characters are the most interesting in their respective shows, I think, anyway. By highlighting the process and journey that they both take to become fully human, it's like holding up a mirror to ourselves. Right. In a way, it's a bit of a slate of hand because both these characters are actually far superior to the humans in many ways, and yet they both retain a childlike innocence in terms of their desire to become more human, their loyalty. But it's really for them becoming less perfect, more emotional, more unpredictable, which is an interesting right. paradox. So when it we is. consider the mechanisms used, whether it's Data's positronic brain or the Doctor's holomatrix, both these characters rely on incredibly powerful computation for their existence, and that's the point. Consciousness is computation. And the final point Kurzweil makes in the Singularity is Near film is that through the use of nanotechnology, we'll be able to create a self-replicating process that will impart computational ability to ordinary matter. He discusses mm. how a one kilogram rock could be turned into a supercomputer and that this new material will be called computronium. And it's a little bit, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting if speculative turn for Kurzweil because there are others who believe that the universe is already conscious. And so right. he's approaching it from the kind of the bottom up instead of the top down. He's saying we can impart consciousness to the universe, whereas others are saying the universe already has it. But they're both talking about panpsychism, which is, I'm not sure I buy it, but I want to talk about what it is. And I'm quoting from an article now called The Idea That Everything From Spoons to Stones Is Conscious Is Gaining Academic Credibility. This is from Quartz. Panpsychism offers an attractive alternative solution. Consciousness is a fundamental feature of physical matter. Every single particle in existence has an unimaginably simple form of consciousness. 
These particles then come together to form more complex forms of consciousness, such as human subjective experiences. This isn't meant to imply that particles have a coherent worldview or actively think, merely that there's some inherent subjective experience of consciousness in even the tiniest particle, end quote. Now, here's the problem with this claim, and that is there's no description of a mechanism. What is a simple form of consciousness? What, what would that even be, right? A being is either self-aware or it's not. And awareness implies Descartes' statement, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. When we discuss human or animal consciousness, we know that neurology is an incredibly complex process. What would give us any reason to think that it arises spontaneously in a single elementary particle? To me, it seems like a form of projection of agency into all matter or just hand-waving. Uh, another kind of God of the gaps argument by people lacking a better explanation. So I would personally need to see a more coherent theory and experimental evidence before I would take materialist panpsychism seriously. Um, the biggest problem, of course, caused by this idea is the combination problem. Precisely how do small particles of consciousness collectively form more complex consciousness? Consciousness may exist in all particles, but that doesn't answer the question of how these tiny fragments of physical consciousness come together to create the more complex experience of human consciousness. So anyway, I, particle consciousness lacks even the explanatory power of computational processes. At least computation gets us halfway there. Mm -hmm. We understand yeah. how computer algorithms have a similarity to human decision-making, even if we don't understand the further leap to self-awareness. How, how does this all strike you? I'm intrigued by panpsychism, but to be honest, I don't know all that much about it. I read a few articles to prepare for this show, and they were completely different from each other. Like they were talking about two different things. One was fairly sensible and rational, and the other one was more bad science and misunderstanding of the quantum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like there is a good faith effort by some scientists as being once again swamped by a lot of religious jumping on the bandwagon. This bandwagon effect has been happening from the very beginning of the quantum revolution, Sean. Yeah. And many of the big names in quantum mechanics like Bohr were themselves open and speculative about the possibilities of this new paradigm to uh, provide answers about consciousness and new understandings. That is until a spiritual cottage industry spread it up and with lots of bad arguments and suppositions sold us truths claiming consciousness was indeed quantum. This mm -hmm. led, you know, to a reticence by physicists to even entertain the idea. Try to find a biologist who will publicly critique the theory of evolution. You won't find many because of the concern that the religious crowd will take advantage of it and use it for propaganda. It's the same here. Yeah. I suspect there are probably a lot of phys physicists who may be more open to the discussion otherwise. Yeah, well, I can say right now that there needs to be a certain amount of scientific rigor. And that is why we have universities. That's why we have credentialed scientists, right? Because right. speculation just runs wild. And especially when desire gets involved, most people commenting on consciousness is like when you have internet wizards who try to talk about vaccinations. It's the same kind of thing. They think because they watched a YouTube video about consciousness, <laughs> that they're now experts and it just doesn't work that way. So, all right, well, we've kind of got to the end of the potential physical explanations for consciousness. It's time for a detour down another possible blind alley, but we don't understand this. So we have to keep all avenues at least partially open, including the Buddhist idea of consciousness monism. And this is something that you'll hear a lot of Buddhists talk about as the ground of being.
And it's not even strictly a Buddhist idea, and I, I don't really have any idea where this got started, but Bertrand Russell also articulates something similar known as Russellian monism. And this is from Stanford again, quote, Russellian monism is a theory in the metaphysics of mind on which a single set of properties underlies both consciousness and the most basic entities posited by physics. The theory is named for Bertrand Russell, whose views about consciousness and its place in nature were informed by a structuralist conception of theoretical physics. On such a structuralist conception, physics describes the world in terms of its spatio-temporal structure and dynamics, changes within that structure, and says nothing about what, if anything, underlies that structure and dynamics. For example, as it is sometimes put, physics describes what mass and charge do. I think you were talking about this earlier, Joe how they dispose objects to move toward or away from each other, but not what mass and charge actually are. Thus, Russell writes the following about the events physics describes. Quoting from Russell, All that physics gives us is certain equations giving abstract properties of their changes, but as to what it is that changes and what it changes from and to, as to this, physics is silent. End quote. Russellian monism can be seen as breaking that silence. It posits properties that underlie the structure and dynamics that physics describes. Further, according to Russellian monism, these same properties are relevant to and may at least partially constitute consciousness. End quote from Stanford. To me, Russell didn't really solve anything with this theory, though. He just moved the problem around, kind of like the homunculus, right? <laughs> In a very real sense, by describing properties of matter, physics describes matter well enough for our purposes. Getting into what matter is at a more fundamental level is kind of like asking the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And I think physicist Lawrence Krauss does a pretty good job addressing this in his book, A Universe from Nothing, which we can maybe take up in a future episode. What's your perception of this Russellian monism, Joe? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I think what is being examined here is a deeper level of reality, as you said. What I alluded to in the beginning of the show Physics explains how particles relate to each other in time and space. It explains particle attraction and repulsion, let's say, and what these dynamics in turn create other particles of different kinds of shapes and forms. Quarks have no shape, for example, per se, but they form atoms that do have shape. This is what they mean by spatiotemporal structures and dynamic, I think. In any case, physics in this way can one day give us a complete description of particles and how they interact. But it does not say much about what matter actually is, as you alluded to, Sean. That is a deeper question that's not being answered. Physics tells us what the mass does, but not what the mass is. Same with chemistry, which is really the accumulated effects of these particles. Chemistry itself is very descriptive of what things do. And in turn, the same with neurochemistry. And lastly, with consciousness, science tells us behavior that's super useful. We know what an electron does, but what is the intrinsic nature of an electron? Follow that up the chain, and we have no answer about the intrinsic nature of the mind. So we're back to the same place. The physicalist view has no answer to the intrinsic nature question. To, to say it just is, it's just not very satisfying. Or I should say, it should not be the end of inquiry. The dualist view has an answer. The mind is part of God or universal consciousness or something to that effect. However, this too is unsatisfying to say the least for all the reasons we have talked about from the lack of evidence to the ethics. Russellian monism is an attempt to create a middle path 
to solve this intrinsic question. And it tries to do that within the confines of materialism. Simply put, there is nothing beyond the physical, but science has not yet come to understand the intrinsic nature of the physical. That is why we have this enduring dualism ideology, this tension between the physical and the conscious. So what is the answer? Well, maybe if I put it in more concrete terms, if that's even possible here. <laughs> what if pain itself is the intrinsic nature of the neurons that fire when we feel pain? This links back to panpsychism in some ways. Perhaps we'll find that pain as a form of feeling, hence consciousness, is an intrinsic property of matter. So electrons may have pain as a latent property which only manifests when electrons come together to form larger structures like neurons. Mm -hmm. Now replace pain with any feeling. This solves the zombie problems found in physicalism that a purely physical explanation of consciousness creates soulless automatons. Agency, free will could arise from a latent and conscious set of properties of matter that expresses itself when a certain level of complexity is reached. The idea that consciousness is intrinsic to matter it's like a force that we can only interact with and observe when expressed in complex forms like brains. But it is nevertheless existent in hidden ways in all matter. The really funny thing about this is that in this view, consciousness is posed as something normal and new and experienced, whereas its physicality or uh, materials, that is really the mystery. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because you end up kind of going in circles, right? Because if you were to, for example, propose that the nature of a neuron was to transmit pain, right? It's a little bit going back to the thinking stuff versus the body stuff, right? You're sort of giving these materials intrinsic properties, right? Because, right. And, and we're doing that as a substitute for actually knowing what they are, what they're composed of. And that's why I find information theory of consciousness to be more attractive than essentialism, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that Russell is trying to say in a way, which is kind of what you hear a lot of religious people say, which is that we don't know enough about any of this, not even at the most base level. And I think in order to do effective science, you have to kind of put a boundary around it. You have to kind of say, all right, we may not know why we're here or what this matter stuff is about, but we can at least determine how it behaves. And then we can build up something. We start out with elementary particles and we move to neurons, we move to consciousness, and it's all information, right? So, Right. Good point. But let me just give you maybe an analogy that will clarify this a little bit. So an electron let's say, has feelings, like it has gravity. Those are properties. That's not the purpose of an electron, to mm -hmm. have feelings or to have gravity. It's just properties of an electron. In gravity, the effect is only visible when many electrons clump together in a large enough piece of mass to notice, right? There's always gravity in, in any mass, but if it's really tiny, it has virtually no noticeable effect, unless they clump together and then it becomes a noticeable effect. In consciousness, that effect are only visible when a certain level of complexity is reached. It's always latent, it's always there, it's a property, but it doesn't manifest until there is that complexity. The nice thing about this, and I agree with you, information theory to me makes more sense, but just to try to examine this, yeah, give it an yeah. honest you know, examination. Mm -hmm. There's no hierarchy here, which is kind of nice. It's not that consciousness stands above matter or the other way around. And that's at least an improvement. 
we're talking there like what you're saying is about a threshold, right? So these are latent right. properties that then become emergent properties when there's a certain threshold of particles reached. Right. So, well, and this is interesting because it, it does dovetail a little bit with the next thing we're going to talk about, which is American medical doctor Robert Lanza. He published a mm -hmm. book in 2010 called Biocentrism, How Life and Consciousness Are the Keys to Understanding the True Nature of the Universe. And this was yes. based on an earlier article from 2007 called A New Theory of the Universe. And what he does is he actually kind of turns everything upside down saying, like we're going to talk about in a minute with Buddhists, that consciousness is the basic building block of the universe. And that, and the reason it's called biocentrism is because he believes that we, with our thoughts, kind of create the entire structure of the universe. And there's a lot of problems with that. He's turned everything upside down from the scientific materialist view that matter creates consciousness. It's essentially the other way around. Consciousness is creating matter. So here's what Lanza says about this quote. We need a revolution in our understanding of science and of the world. Living in an age dominated by science, we have come more and more to believe in an objective empirical reality and in the goal of reaching a complete understanding of that reality. Part of that thrill that came with the announcement that the human genome had been mapped or with an idea that we are close to understanding the Big Bang rests in our desire for completeness. But we are fooling ourselves, he says. Most of these comprehensive theories are no more than stories that fail to take into account one crucial factor. We are creating them. It is the biological creature that makes observations, names what it observes, and creates stories. Science has not succeeded in confronting the element of existence that is at once most familiar and most mysterious conscious experience, end quote. Lanza continues along this vein in the article, citing the anthropic principle that the universe seems to be fine-tuned, not just for the existence of atoms and stars and planets and galaxies, but also for our own biological existence. Quoting him again, for example, if the Big Bang had been one part in a billion more powerful, it would have rushed out too fast for the galaxies to form and for life to begin. If the strong nuclear force were decreased by 2%, atomic nuclei wouldn't hold together. Hydrogen would be the only atom in the universe. If the gravitational force were decreased, stars, including the sun, would not ignite. Now, that's the end quote from Robert Lanza. The retort to the anthropic principle is, of course, if those things hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here to observe the results. Perhaps there are other universes that are devoid of life or atoms. Why do we think our universe is all there is? We just don't know, and the anthropic principle is often used to invoke intelligent design, leading us back to an intelligent right. creator who somehow cares about our existence and designed the universe just for us. Religion pops its head up everywhere if we're not careful in our thinking. But I don't even think that's the worst error that Lanza makes. He's using the well-known observer effect in quantum physics to posit that perhaps it is life that creates the universe, not the other way around. But this well-worn trope, as common as it is in New Age circles, is based on a misconception. It is not conscious observation of a particle that changes its position, but measurement. Now, I, I was interviewing Victor Stenger before he died, and he, he made this point very clearly that it, it is the instrument. Because in order to measure the position or mass of a particle, you have to bounce another particle off of it. So basically, you're physically changing that particle with the instrument, whether it's using light or electrons to image another particle, right? So consciousness is nowhere involved in that. And this is the big misconception that you have in the new age. And also the observer effect only has an impact on elementary particles, not large objects. And I know that's something that we discussed earlier. We might discover might not be true, but what we know right now is that quantum effects tend to cancel out. And so 
it's not a whole lot to hang your hat on if you're going to create a new theory of everything. Right. <laughs> it puts consciousness at the center of the universe, right? That That is a huge inversion of the entire standard model of physics. And it puts him in very close company with people like Deepak Chopra, who unsurprisingly endorsed his book. Well, it's it borders on monism on the other way around, right? It's sort of a mind monism. And I don't know if it quite goes all the way there, but it certainly comes close. I think it described the problem really well. I think your thinking was right on. It's fun to imagine. Biocentrism is interesting from a imaginative point of view, like the Force in Star Wars. I can wonder how many midichlorians are in my body, but I know it's just fun. It's just imagination, speculative. I mean, if life is the nature of the universe, if that it's all about life, then why is 99.9, maybe 15 more nines after that percent of the, the universe non-living? Right. I mean, I don't think that's very efficient. No. As far as the observer effect, that's an interesting effect. I do agree that it's misappropriated in a lot of these religious tropes and so forth that implies a conscious mind. Experimentation requires instruments, not necessarily observers, and it still works. Like yeah. you said, it does still leave open the question as how the instrument can have such an effect. Some of these instruments are passive. They're not actually emitting. They're not active instruments emitting particles. They're, they're receiving and, and capturing information. And so, the interesting thing is there's still no mechanism there that we understand, but it doesn't necessarily relate to consciousness. Yeah, that would be the first that I've heard about an instrument that is passive that still can affect the experiment. It would have to interact with it in some way, I would think. Right. And According to our understanding of physics, it would have to interact with it. Yeah. Well, biocentrism, as we said, it's, it's an extremely close intellectual relative of the consciousness monism of Buddhism, which is sometimes referred to by Buddhists as Buddhist materialism. This is really confusing because Buddhists aren't talking about materialism at all. In fact, Buddhists tend to be hostile to materialism. Let me try to explain, and this is, this is kind of our last topic here, so bear with us. I'm going to read from the abstract of an article called Buddhist Mind and Matter by Francisca Cho of the Theology Department of Georgetown University. Quote, Buddhism is often looked upon to defend the reality of mind and consciousness from the reductions of scientific materialism, end quote. Now, notice that right away, this abstract begins in a defensive posture to defend the reality of consciousness from the reductions of scientific materialism. So rather than laying out any case, it accuses those who believe of, that consciousness arises from the material interactions as having engaged in reductionism, which is basically code for calling science stupid in a way. In academic terms, reductionism is both an insult and a dismissal kind of without argument, unless you lay out your case, right? So the abstract also quotes the Dalai Lama, and he says, given that one of the primary characteristics of consciousness is its subjective and experiential nature, any systematic study of it must adopt a method that will give access to the dimensions of subjectivity and experience, end quote. Now, I got to stop right there a little bit and say that by definition, subjectivity can't be empirical. Empirical observation is external observers who can maybe disagree with each other, right? You have to figure out what is perceptual or measurement error and subjectivity just can't be explored. It's kind of like the hard problem of consciousness, right? You can't both be empirical, observing the external correlates of consciousness, 
and you can't at the same time be inside reporting your experience, right? Science is essentially objectivity just as much as consciousness is subjectivity, which kind of makes what the Dalai Lama is saying a little difficult. But I want to continue reading this or this abstract and quoting from it. Some suggest that Buddhism's long tradition of introspection on mental states offers empirical observations of subjectivity that can be replicated and practiced by others. Furthermore, it is suggested that scientists can test and verify the higher states of consciousness described by Buddhism and their resulting paranormal phenomena, such as recall of former lives. Appeals for non-reductive scientific studies of consciousness can reinforce a strong cultural assumption, however, to wit, they enforce the conceit that the physical world, in contrast to the mental one, is a given entity that is much easier to access. It is assumed that matter is out there for all to observe, unlike someone's consciousness, which is internal and difficult to empirically see. This is why the study of consciousness qua consciousness rather than as the brain is approached in the manner of an apology. The thesis of this paper is that a Buddhist contribution to the study of consciousness might be to turn the situation on its head. The Buddhist tradition of phenomenological observation has led it to note that all categories, including matter, are ultimately internal rather than external to consciousness. End quote. So this is really down the rabbit hole as far as I'm concerned. Again, like Robert Lanza, Buddhists are inverting the entire universe to be based on consciousness monism. And that consciousness precedes, supersedes matter. I mean, is this... Am I overreacting? Is this as full of hubris as I think it is? There's so much like we can say here, but let me just focus on one thing first, which is the hierarchy. I'm suspicious of that. My position is that mind and matter are part of the natural and an integrated phenomenon. We don't fully understand it, but it's not like we're dealing with two separate realms. Again, right. it goes, and even if you posit that it's all mind, mm -hmm. like some Buddhists do, a lot of Buddhists do. I don't know if all Buddhists do, but I think that it's a pretty common trope in Buddhism. It still says, well, there's something else to mind, right? Mm -hmm. There's something else that we, we call matter. And what we're trying to do here is we're trying to get a, a natural understanding of reality. We are falling back into the trap of these categories that were established through a long history. And I think that it's a chicken of the egg argument in a lot of ways. Which is it matter? Is it material? It seems to me like once we can perfectly and rationally say that it is all material, and at the same time, don't have to keep arguing about the mind as being a separate whole, that's an argument they want to have. The people who believe in dualism or the people who believe in mind uh, monism. And I don't think we need to have that argument, except... Yeah, they're trying to keep the controversy alive so that they have something to talk yeah. about, right? Because otherwise it all falls apart. If you believe in Buddhism or some form of, of consciousness monism or dualism, you don't want to let that go. And I think that's what we're, a lot of what we're seeing here. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, I mean, I also want to say something about science and reductionism. There are many scientific methods that aren't reductive today. Look at ecological science and systems theory, for example. Reductionism is one way to do science. Arguably, it's the major way to do science. Mm -hmm. Science started out as primarily reductionist, but science has evolved. Also, the other thing is reductionism is extremely powerful. <laughs> Nothing to be ashamed about. <laughs> science has been staggeringly successful 
using this methodology. You have to draw circles. You have to say, this is going to be our area of focus, right? And you can relate that to the larger universe or larger systems. But that the whole idea of science is you got to make observations. And most of the time, those are very focused. Right. I mean, in some ways, all of academia is reductionist. We have disciplines. Right. That's why I'm looking at everything all at once. Calling but, something reductionist without proposing your alternative, it's almost a way of, of shaming a particular result that you don't like. It's a simple critique that can be thrown without too much you know, thought because you know, it's done all the time. But when you really think about it, 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 again, it's one of those, it's kind of a bad faith argument in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's like but, saying something's oversimplified. Right. <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean? <laughs> And then one other thing I want to say about Buddhism, uh, Buddhism is religion or philosophy, depending how you look at it. There's no Godhead per se in, in mm. Buddhism, except in, a, in sort of local folk culture there is, but not in the high sort of, sort of philosophical Buddhism. No matter, it's still a set of beliefs created by humans. That's what we have to keep reminding ourselves. It has value and it has problems. Don't worship it. Learn about it if you like and see what it has to offer. But I do want to give a word of caution. I love to explore ideas myself, and so I have not been afraid to travel with an open and critical mind. Mm -hmm. And times you get caught in these landscapes, there are dangers there. That's a part of the exploration. I have fallen down many rabbit holes myself, so I'm a bit more wary now. You know, I walk into a new landscape and I take it in, and I decide where best to set up my camp, how long to stay. I also have learned very much to value the skeptics and they have a very important role to play in science and the and the acquisition of knowledge yeah. it's useful to have different approaches to knowledge and to science you need the skeptics to keep things honest right and you've done a great job with that in this discussion very useful and you need sort of the wanderers to sort of reach forward a little bit and be a little bit more speculative so that we do start to sort of challenge ourselves with new ideas what do i think of a biocentrism there might be something to it at some level maybe but it's not really a landscape i'm begging to explore after all my wanderings i've learned to avoid places that have lots of holes to fall into <laughs> and and this seems like one of them to me i could be wrong but it just does well, you can especially be suspect of anyone who thinks they're going to overthrow the entire standard model of physics. Precisely. You know, if, if, you, if you're making a measured discovery, you could be taken a lot more seriously than if you're saying, hey, everything every scientist has ever said is wrong and has to be completely reevaluated. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it's beyond the paradigm shift, right? It's just, it's pretty crazy change if you think about it. Yeah. And those things don't usually happen that way. Like when Einstein came along, he didn't throw out Newton. Right. Exactly. The Newton's laws became a special case of general relativity. All right. Well, we're running out of time for today. And I know we have gotten into so many topics here. And thank you for bearing with us. The bottom line for me after studying and reading for about two decades on the subject of consciousness is that I don't find the explanations of consciousness monism at all satisfying. Can I prove these things false? Of course not. That's not how science works. We can't rule anything out. We rule ideas in when we find supporting evidence. And damn it, people should be expected to hold their horses and avoid jumping to conclusions before they right. have evidence. So, but based on that, if I had to speculate, if I had mm -hmm. to place a bet on what is going to bear fruit in terms of solving the consciousness puzzle, I think the holy grail of consciousness will potentially be found in information theory, 
by advanced neurological simulations run on supercomputers, you know, this cortical column simulation times, you know, a, a, a billion might be able to come close to making a brain and quantum computers may help with this. And at some point we're going to build a realistic enough brain simulation that it will wake up in some form. And we're going to recognize that we've built a conscious being. And when that happens, we'll have the tools at our disposal to recognize what kind of computational structures create self-awareness. And that will in turn help us to understand ourselves. And it, it's going to be a big fucking deal. It's going to be an event yeah. along the lines of first contact because it will be our first experience with a non-biological intelligence, yeah. which will, it's going to effectively be an alien intelligence. Right. It will also have kind of shattering sociological consequences comparable to what happened when Copernicus discovered that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. Because make no mistake, I mean, consciousness and the issues surrounding it are central to our civilization. And, and this is just going to upend once, once we have a computer that can talk back to us and convince us that it's conscious, it's, it's going to change everything. It certainly is, right? yeah. You can even imagine what the implications for religion and governance once we recognize that humans aren't particularly special and that a machine is potentially superior. We've seen the centuries-long resistance to Darwinian evolution and accepting ourselves as a part of the animal kingdom. Now add on top of that, that a machine that humans built is being equal to or, or possibly surpassing human self-awareness. Where right. does any kind of God fit into that picture? And uh, can you give me your final thoughts on this, Joe? Well, look, I wanna say something about scientism before we go, because that is a charge that's often aimed at people who want to maintain scientific rigor, who want to say, you should not challenge the standard model on a whim, mm -hmm. like you were just saying now. And I think it relates to this question. One thing we asked earlier is, how do you assess? How do you assess this stuff? What is valid? And it's very easy for people to say, well, you're just being dogmatic about it. You're not willing to listen. You're not willing to explore new ideas. <laughs> and science is not just another ideology. I mean, there's certainly ideological inertia in all human endeavors. Science, least of all, I would say, because it's designed, literally designed to eliminate this kind of bias. But it still has a little bit of this tendency because scientists are human. Sure. But science always finds a way to break through the cultural baggage it finds itself in, sometimes slowly, mm -hmm. and it takes patience, like you said, Sean, incrementally, sometimes in big paradigm shifts. And I suspect that science will come to understand the nature of consciousness at a much greater level in the next decades. I agree with you there. The empirical evidence will win out in the end. That is what makes science unique among all belief systems. Uh, when Alfred Wegener posited the continental drift hypothesis, he was roundly laughed at and discredited. It's a good Con example. <laughs> you know, the continents moving around, what are you, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It took another half a century before we developed uh, the technology to be able to see the magnetic imaging of igneous rocks and how that had proved that the, 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 there was spread going on. And that hypothesis turned into the defining theory of geology, which is plate tectonics. Now we can measure this effect with GPS, right? The continents move yeah. as much as a few inches a year in some places. So as our ability to observe the world improves, it breaks through old thinking in ways that are literally unimaginable. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we will get more telescopes that look up at the heavens and see that we are not in the center of the universe. Look at all these galaxies. Who had imagined galaxies before? Until we had that technology, they were unimaginable. We'll get more microscopes that will reveal a whole new previously unimagined realities and create new theories. Who had conceived of viruses before we had that technology? And that's how it works. More surprises are coming, so be ready. And that's a great note to end on, Joe. And thank you so much for this. I just had a great time doing this show with you, and I really yeah. appreciated everything you had to say. Same here. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I had great fun, and it was really, you know, very fascinating stuff. All right. If you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.